Now, as some of you may know, parables were definitely one of Jesus's favorite ways of teaching. These short stories or poems would cause whoever was listening to think, to go deeper, and to wrestle with what they had heard in order to grasp the meaning of the lesson. In fact, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus tells 36 different parables. So today, we're going to open up to Mark 12, but before we take a look at the parable, if you will allow me, I would like to paint the scene for you. At this time, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. He has made his triumphant entry. Hosanna, Hosanna, the people were shouting. But as he gets into Jerusalem, he very quickly finds himself in a confrontation with the chief priests. After entering the temple, he starts flipping tables and chasing people out, you know, kind of like you would see in an old western. Jesus walks in and behaves as if he is the owner of the place, and this does not sit well with the priest. The chief priests confront him and challenge him, asking him, who do you think you are coming in here and messing everything up? Returning the challenge, Jesus says, hey, I'll answer your question if you can answer mine. So Jesus asked them his question, and they reply, we do not know. So Jesus replies, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that leads us to the parable we're going to be looking at today, the parable of the vine growers. Many of you will know this, like I said, again, it was already in Matthew 21, and we do find it again here in Mark 12. But the thing with parables is it's kind of like an onion. There's many layers, and you have to peel them all back to get to the center. Not everything is what it seems on the surface. So today, since we are the ones hearing this parable, I pray that you would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and that you would be ready to go with me on this journey, okay? Starting in verse 1, it says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, and he dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. If we want to look at it today, if we want a, a common way of understanding this, this would be like sharecropping. Sharecropping is a system which the landowner or planter allows a tenant or tenants to use the land in an exchange for a share of the crop. This was very commonplace in the day. However, in verse 2, we start to see there's a little bit of a snag here. Not everything's going to go as planned. See, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vineyard growers. My question to you right now is, who has been working the vines? Well, that would be the farmers, the tenants. They've been putting in all the hard work. But whose fruit is it? Who does the crop belong to? That would be the possession of the landowner. The farmers work the land, but it is the owner's fruit. Verse 3, 
They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, referring back to the servant that he had sent. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Here I would like you to think of John the Baptist and how he came to his demise. Hopefully now we're starting to get a little bit of a shadow of what it is that Christ is trying to teach here. So here it is. There's a mutiny that is taking place on the vineyard. So what does the owner do? He sends more servants. This guy must be crazy. He's already sent some. They've been beaten up. They've been trashed. They've been killed. Eh, I'll just go ahead and send a few more. They'll get it this time for sure. Verse 5 tells us quite differently. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. And then it changes in verse 6. I know what I'll do. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. See, the son would have a large amount of authority, the same amount of authority as his father. You would think that this would be the point where the uh, tenants maybe perked up and wised up. However, in verse 7, but those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Like the son is walking around with the inheritance in his pocket. I'm not quite sure what the thinking was here, but this was the plan. They wanted it for their own. So in verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Here, when Jesus is teaching this parable, he's referring to himself. He already knows that he must suffer and die at the hands of the Jewish leaders and chief priests. In fact, he makes this very clear in Mark chapter 8. Starting in verse 27, it says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? And good old Peter chimes in and he answers and he said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And good old Peter again 
took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Picking back up in verse 10 from chapter 12, Jesus says, and I love this part because he had a very good way of taking the knowledge that the Pharisees should have already had from the Torah. See, the Pharisees were the chosen ones. They were the ones who were good enough, smart enough. They had the family that was well-to-do. So they were taught the scriptures of the old. And they should have known this. So Jesus throws it back in their face. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So now we're going to peel back the layers and start to answer some questions here. The vineyard owner, I think we would all agree, is God. Correct? So then who is the vineyard? The vineyard is Israel, his beloved people. The tenants would be the Jewish leaders who turned from God. Not only did they turn from God, but they led the people of Israel astray and kept them from God, oppressing them. They wanted to kill the beloved son and seize power and control for themselves. They wanted it God's special possession. They wanted Israel. In doing so, they beat and killed the prophets that God had sent. Going back to, again, thinking about John the Baptist, they had beheaded him. With all this disobedience and open insult towards God, God devises a way to remove the leaders from the position of power they so desperately wanted to maintain. God had to do this by sending his only son. He did it by removing the leaders from their position of power and installed a new king to reign over his people, the king, of course, being Christ. Now, this parable was most certainly aimed at the Pharisees, and they knew it. It goes on in Mark 12, verse 12, to say, and they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Have you ever been insulted, and about 20 minutes later you go, oh my, that was about me. Then you feel really kind of silly, because you weren't even smart enough to catch it right then and there. That must have been how they felt. But they left him and went away. So as I was going through this, and I was trying to really wrap my head around this, knowing that this was aimed at the Pharisees, the question then became, Lord, what can we take from this today? Surely we're not the leaders. We're not Pharisees. We don't get to make religious law. But there is a lesson nonetheless. See, when Christ was crucified and he died, and he was brought to life three days later. He was put in the position of the rightful king 
over Israel and over humanity. In fact, in his death, with the crown of thorns, he was crowned. In a robe, they dressed him in royal, royal garb, and he was put up high on the cross. All of this that was meant for shame worked out for good. So again, I ask, what lesson does this leave us with? What can we take away from this 2,000 years later? I would challenge you to look at it this way. When Christ commissioned his disciples, he told them to go and make disciples of all people in all nations. He told Peter, who had rejected him, so for those of us who are thinking, because I'm sure this whole congregation, we would never reject Jesus. Let's keep in mind, Peter did three times. But Christ and God's love is sufficient. His grace is beyond compare. And Christ says to Peter, feed my sheep. He told the disciples that they would go on to do these things and even greater things in his name. Today, we are disciples of Christ. So this charge, this commission, was not just for the twelve. This charge and this commission is for each and every one of us here in this room today. For those of the, for, uh, for the participants watching online, for anyone who professes that Christ is their Lord and Savior, we have been commissioned to go and share the gospel and win souls for Christ. But in doing so, we must be careful to check ourselves and our motives, not to be judgmental, not to be harsh, but to speak in love, to correct from the heart, not with a condemning tongue, as the Pharisees did. We have been granted permission to be the tenants of the vineyard, and what God desires from all of us is to yield good fruit. I know that every day there is a new struggle, and Major Amber put it very beautifully earlier. There's always a distraction. There's always something pulling our attention. And I'll be the first one to be transparent and stand up here and say, there are definitely times I am judgmental. There are definitely times I look at others who need help, and I think, that's just too much for me today. Or I got my own stuff going on. I'm not innocent of this. However, I know that God's grace is sufficient and that we are given new mercies every day to get this right. A mentor of mine put it beautifully. She said, the best people in ministry are the ones who are often not great at it and they fall down on their face, but they will get up the next day and they will go do it again and they will go do it again and they will go do it again, chasing harder after Christ to win souls. Today, I'm not sure if there's a point in your life where you've rejected Christ, where you've walked away, or if you're thinking in your heart, Lord, this, this isn't it for me. This is too much. I want to challenge you in saying that God already knows the struggles that you are fighting against, but he is still calling you to be a tenant in the vineyard, to work the field, and to help produce good fruit, to make new disciples of Christ. 
If there is anyone who is struggling today, please, I beseech you, these altars are open, and he is ready to hear you, and not only that, he is ready to speak to you, to give you the forgiveness that you are looking for, to set you free so that you can go and do the work that you have been called to do. If we can have some music play, we'll give you some time. Again, the altar is open. If you don't feel comfortable coming up to the front, I completely understand. If you would like to sit and pray in your seats, that's just as well. But again, God could remove us from the vineyard, but he has not done that with us. So let's praise him today and say thank you.